Many of us have been sold the idea, I might even say the pseudo-scientific idea, that big science understands most of what's going on in the world. Well, maybe they don't. Maybe there are blind spots. Maybe there are other perspectives. Thousands of millions of ideas being held back by a dam waiting to break through. Maybe there's another way of looking at the world. Let's talk about it in a moment. But first, I'll just mention <laughs> I'm giving cognitive behavioral sessions. So if you want to explore the world of beliefs and ideas with me to get some guidance so you can start to change your ideas about the world and maybe see how it affects your happiness, stay listening to the end of the episode. Let's begin. Welcome, beautiful thinkers. I'd like to talk about scientific openness. There's this quote in Maslow's Toward a Psychology of Being. He's talking about how traditionally, and this is even true today, though this book was written some 50 years ago, traditionally scientists see themselves as focusing on the objective problems and the the questions about subjective experience, about art or creativity. These are things that are somewhat excluded from science. And he, he writes this quote, We must help the scientific psychologists to realize that they are working on the basis of a philosophy of science, not the philosophy of science, and that any philosophy of science which serves primarily an excluding function is a set of blinders, a handicap rather than a help. All the world, all of experience, must be open to study. Nothing, not even the personal problems, need to be closed off from human investigation. Otherwise, we will force ourselves into the idiotic position that some labor unions have frozen themselves into. Only carpenters may touch wood, and carpenters may touch only wood. New materials and new methods must then be annoying and even threatening catastrophes rather than opportunities. I remind you also of the primitive tribes who must place everyone in the kinship system. If a newcomer shows up who cannot be placed, there is no way to solve the problem but to kill him. It makes me think about a few things. <laughs> Nassim Taleb, uh, he has a rather choleric personality. He has some interesting ideas. Uh, he likes to use this phrase, intellectual but idiot. Intellectual yet idiot. And I, I think... We all know this archetype a bit. It's like somebody who has studied all the books, knows all the theory, but maybe he doesn't understand a lot about real life. In my interview with my friend Kenny Pallarentano, he said that he, he was very intelligent in a certain way in terms of book smarts, and he had these monikers for himself online like 
I know all, I know everything. But he only had this certain type of intelligence, only the book smarts, only the theory. He didn't really know a lot about life. And it was afterwards when, when he realized that, then he could begin to explore the world and explore with some intellectual honesty and do experimentation in his own life and find out for himself what his experience meant. And I still remember as well on the, the, the same theme of intellectual yet idiot, there's that scene from the ad- adaptation of Gulliver's Travels. I think it's Ted Danson in the, the starring role. And he's in this floating city that stays in the air based on uh, giant magnets. And the, the emperor of the city or the, the mayor of the city is this very, very inter- intelligent man. And uh, Gulliver says to his wife, oh, your, your husband is so intelligent, so intelligent. And she's, she says, he's a fool. He says, yes, but a fool of great intellect. <laughs> and this is meant to be, in some sense, this was a, a satire of British society at the time where academics were venerated even if they were fools (laughs) and in a sense we can still see that today of course there's much more to intellect than than book learning i've noticed some people use their intelligence to build walls around them of great minds naturally perhaps with creativity and also a lot of logic and they use that to form some rigid structure of thinking where they won't even allow themselves to entertain certain ideas as a great man once said it is the mark of an educated mind that is able to entertain ideas without accepting them I don't know. I don't remember who said that. It might have been Aristotle. Uh, (laughs) There was a case with uh, now Nobel laureate Luc Montaigne. He was visiting, I think, there was a fellow Frenchman, Jacques Bienveniste. And Montaigne attended this certain conference and Benveniste was presenting these ideas which were very outside of the the accepted ideas at the time and talking about these experiments he'd done which which seemed to lend some evidence to to these new hypotheses that he'd come up with and I don't know if those hypotheses ended up being true but uh, Montaigne said that there was this certain attitude among scientists at the time and the attitude Montaigne summed it up like this it's not true even if it were true I wouldn't believe it now if you listen to the episode on Eric Weinstein's portal podcast it's called D-I-S-K the distributed idea suppression complex Weinstein talks about how academic institutions do smother ideas that don't fit within their framework. And 
also, as Maslow talks about, about our philosophy of science, not the philosophy of science, there is a tendency, a kind of religious tendency, to think that because science, the scientific method or the general scientific process is a certain way today, for example, with peer-reviewed studies, there's a tendency to believe that it's always been that way and that's always been the process and that's the only way, in fact. Of course, there are many ways to ascertain truth. Many, many ways. Perhaps as many ways as there are human beings on planet Earth. Uh, the peer review method, uh, Weinstein points out, it's, it's relatively new, like maybe 60 years old or a bit more. And there were cases in the past, like with Walter Crick's experiments about DNA. When the publications received Crick's paper, Crick and, and Crick et al., they said, well, this is just so important and so fascinating. We're not even going to wait. When it, like the editor made the decision, he, he wasn't even going to review it. He wasn't even going to make some notes. He wasn't definitely was not going to get a peer of Crick's to go through it and criticize it and, and uh, get Crick to resubmit it. They just said, let's put it out there because this is that important and fascinating and inspiring to, to wonder. <laughs> so, Weinstein makes, makes all of these points uh, very eloquently, talk, talking about how the scientific process and the scientific community, the academic community, is kind of stifled at, at this point. Because perhaps they're working with a bunch of assumptions that are unable to be questioned by anybody within that community. People who do question them, for example, well, I don't think Weinstein would cite uh, Rupert Sheldrake. It's probably too far out even for Weinstein. But Rupert Sheldrake questions the, the, the ideas of science in, in his book, The Science Delusion, or otherwise known as Science Set Free. He questions the dogmas of science. People like Sheldrake, who do question these established rules of the game, are not treated seriously by academic institutions. And, and that's fine. The point of this all is, the reason I bring this up is because I think many people have been sold this vision, this idea that as someone wrote more than a hundred years ago that science had more or less got the world down and it was only these things in the fifth decimal place that needed to be examined. And I don't think that was true then. I don't think it's true now. I think the world is open to wonder. I think we can find out so much of the world through our own experience and own experimentation and our own perspicacity. And maybe we can get a glimpse into what's really going on. Maybe we can get a glimpse into the great mystery. Thank you for using your powers of discernment to try to find out what's going on with the world. And thank you for being open to wonder 
about new interpretations, new possibilities, new ways of looking at the world. A beautiful thought. Thank you for listening. So I'm offering these cognitive behavioral sessions. What it's about, basically, a lot of the time we think when annoying things happen to us, we blame the event or the other person. But a lot of the time, what's actually going on certain mental processes, our interpretations and beliefs, which we have the power to change. And when we do, we can let go of that frustration, never to be seen again, <laughs> never to experience annoyance. Well, maybe that's going a bit too far, but we can find a greater peace and happiness in our lives by discovering our beliefs and subjecting them to some examination. So check out beautifulpodcast.com. You see at the top it says CBT Sessions and you can book a session with me. Have a great day. Yeah.